Brazil insist on Gabriel Jesus travelling for international duty. Arsenal go above Spurs in the Premier League. Plus, we'll reflect on that thriller at the bridge between Chelsea and Manchester City. Pochettino and De Zerbi go after the referee. So where's all the outrage this week? DiMarco wins the Puskas Award already at San Siro. And more on this week's episode of The Debrief right here on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Hey, everybody, how's it going? Hope you're good. Hope you're well. Welcome back to this week's uh, episode of The Debrief on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. I can't really welcome you back to this week's episode because this week's episode hasn't happened yet. What I meant to say was welcome back to The Debrief here on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. I I just want to say a massive thank you, actually, for the kind of love that you guys have shown this show over the first couple of weeks. Um, it was something that I wanted to do for a little while. It is something that's a little bit different. We obviously talk Arsenal. Of course we do. This is an Arsenal podcast and we'll always do that. But we also have the freedom and the license and the scope on this episode, on this show, I should say, to be able to go elsewhere and talk about other stories in the footballing world. And I think it's important that we do that sometimes because, you know, it's nice to have context with regards to the wider world when you go into uh, big games involving the Arsenal, when you're discussing decisions, when you're discussing the general landscape of football and how that impacts Arsenal, it's good to have an idea of, of what things look like elsewhere. I'm across the game of football um, quite a bit. You know, I love the Premier League. I love Serie A a little bit more these days, I have to say. Um, but that's another conversation for another day. Um, as I say, look, lots and lots to get into. Um, we're going to talk Gabriel Jesus. We're going to talk Arsenal leapfrogging Spurs in the Premier League. We're also going to talk about that thriller at the bridge between Chelsea and Manchester City. We'll talk Pochettino de Zerbi. Uh, we'll talk Newcastle uh, as well. Villa's win uh, over Fulham, which saw them move to within a point of Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, we'll also discuss Tottenham Hotspur's defeat at Wolves. So lots and lots of interesting stuff to get into. We'll go uh, over to Italy. We'll focus a little bit on uh, some of the big stories from Serie A. We'll talk Shabby Alonso and Bayer Leverkusen, as well as a familiar face. And at the end of the show, uh, we're going to take some of your questions as well. So really, really looking forward to this one. Let me say a few hellos. We've got Jimmy, uh, BC Biker Bros. We've got Andreas. We've got Greenbone. We've got Evan. We've got uh, Wellness with Wallace, Ian Wallace. Uh, We've got Nav. We've got uh, Fort Lauderdale Guna Craig. We've got uh, Money Ain't. We've got Earfan Charger. We've got Oslo Guna. And we've got Mohammed as well. Uh, joining us in the live chat. Hope you're well, my friend. Um, hope uh, hope everything is uh, is okay where you are. Um, okay, let's um, let's begin then. I think by talking Arsenal, shall we? Let's begin by discussing Gabriel Jesus's fitness and some of the latest developments with regards to our Brazilian forward. So Gabriel Jesus um, currently out injured. At the moment, the Brazilian hasn't featured for Arsenal Football Club since he picked up a hamstring injury out in Seville. And that was incredibly frustrating because, A, I think we all think that in terms of the cover that we have available, nobody is even close to his level. I think we can all agree that Eddie Nketiah is a good forward player, but he isn't Gabriel Jesus in terms of the way he links up play and all the other things he brings to the table. And we can also agree that although Leandro Trossard's had a couple of good games at false nine slash centre forward, whatever you want to call it, he is not at the same level as Gabriel Jesus either, despite those two goals, as I say. Um, 
but also because the night on which Gabriel Jesus picked up this problem and had to be substituted, and ultimately the last time we saw him in an Arsenal shirt, which I think off the top of my head was back on, what, the 24th of October? He probably put in one of his best performances in an Arsenal shirt. He provided that wonderful assist for Gabriel Martinelli to open the scoring uh, out in the Ramon Sanchez pith one. And then, of course, he produced um, a, a magical goal to double Arsenal's lead. OK, Seville pulled one back. But Arsenal went on to win that game by two goals to one. And he was very much the match winner that night. You know, and it came at a time where people were starting to question it. You know, do Arsenal need to do better at centre forward? Do Arsenal need to turn their attentions elsewhere? Do Arsenal need to upgrade on the guy that they brought um, just at the beginning uh, of last season? So when he sort of turned out that performance, I think a lot of us felt like, wow, you know, what a statement, what a way to shut people up, what a way to silence everybody. Um, but then, of course, the game ended in frustration, more so because of his injury than anything else, but a little bit of frustration for me crept in because we turned a game that should have been really, really easy um, and a game that we were in pole position in into something quite difficult. I hoped that Gabriel Jesus had picked up a, a slight problem. I hoped that it was a precautionary change. Mikel Arteta's comments post-match, you know, they they they, they weren't good. Um, Jesus tried to talk it down, um, sort of suggested that actually it's not that bad. Mikel Arteta was the opposite, though. He was clearly quite worried about another spell on the sidelines for the Brazilian. So, you know, he's been out ever since then. And, you know, we know that Mikel Arteta tells porkies, right? We know that Mikel Arteta might say, you know, he's he's close, he's close, he's close, or he's a few weeks away. And we know that we might turn up on the next Saturday or Sunday and he'd be in the squad. But that is not unprecedented when it comes to Mikel Arteta. We've seen it happen many, many times with many different players. So there was always a part of me that thought, is he back? Is he close to being back? Is he as far away as maybe we're being allowed to believe? And then this story came out today, a story from Simon Collings. Um, and basically the gist of it, you know, you can go and read it yourselves. But the, the gist of it is that the Brazilian national team, who, of course, just like every other national team, have the right to assess a player themselves, have insisted that Gabriel Jesus travels to Brazil and reports in with everybody else for international duty. So you can look at this in one of two ways. You can look at it and say, hold on a minute. This is wild. We as Arsenal Football Club are telling you that this guy is unavailable. Hence why he's not playing for us. Yet you want to make your own assessment, which could lead to you rushing him back, which could lead to him having an extended period on the sidelines, which doesn't affect Brazil because after this international break, they're not playing till when? March? But it will have and could potentially have an adverse impact on Arsenal if they get this wrong. The other way of looking at it is that Brazil have been in touch with Arsenal, are fully aware that Gabriel Jesus has been carrying an injury of late, but actually believe and feel like over the course of this international break, he could be ready to go again, which would suggest that maybe he's not going to be out as long as we initially thought, which is obviously good news. So I, I don't really know what way to look at this. And I don't really know, um, you know, how I should kind of process this. If this is just Brazil being petty and exercising that right, because maybe they don't believe 
the word that they're getting out of Arsenal. Maybe they think that Arsenal are trying um, to kind of pull the wool over their eyes so that they can keep hold of their player um, and, you know, reduce the, the chances of him picking up a, either another injury or, you know, wanting to save some legs, wanting to, you know, protect him against fatigue going into what's a really, really busy period in the English football calendar. If Brazil think that and they've gone and enforced this right to make Gabby Jesus travel all the way there just to have a look at him, then that is a little bit petty, in my opinion. And that would highlight that the relationship maybe between Arsenal and Brazil isn't that great. And, you know, that would surprise me because Edu was, of course, a part of the staff of the Brazilian national team. And I always felt that him having a line into them would, would be beneficial to us. Or, as I say, Gabriel Jesus is actually closer to fitness than we, we thought or expected. And Brazil feel like maybe he can participate in the second game uh, that they've got. But I just think if there's any chance of him not being involved, given that Gabriel Jesus doesn't even always start for Brazil, this feels like a, a bit of a silly thing to do and a waste of time. So I'm not going to go mad about it either way at this moment in time, because as I say, you know, it, it could be either of those two things. But I do find this a little bit strange. What we also know is that Martin Erdegaard is not going on international duty, which doesn't exactly fill me with confidence with regards to his injury. He's been out for a little bit now uh, with the Arsenal, but he's not going, the Norwegian captain that is, of course, to go and uh, and participate in their upcoming games. I guess the fact that they are out in terms of being able to qualify for the Euros is probably, you know, played into that. You know, maybe he'd have tried to push through. Maybe they'd have taken a little bit more of a gamble uh, had that been a possibility. What I will say about both of these two players is that, you know, often we talk about clubs needing to wrap their players up in cotton wool and we say, well, don't don't send them, hold them back. Somebody like Gabriel Jesus especially, you know, will be desperate to play for Brazil at any opportunity he gets. Playing for the Seleção is one of the biggest honours in football and Gabriel Jesus would have grown up dreaming of that. So I think it's unfair for us as fans to expect players to go, eh, you know, gone. Just give this one a miss. You know, stay with your club. Yeah, okay. The club pays your wages and and all the rest of it, and that's your bread and butter and your day to day. I get all of that, but I think it is a little bit unfair of us as fans sometimes when we expect the players to just dismiss the importance of international football. And you know, clearly Martin Odegaard loves playing for his country. He's the captain. Clearly Gabriel Jesus feels like he's got a point to prove when playing for his country, and as a result, probably feels like he can't afford to do this type of thing. If you're a player that is fully in favour with the manager every single time and you do need uh, an international, um, you know, break off because, you know, you're, you're nursing a problem, you're carrying an issue, then, you, you know, you, you probably look at that and think, look, boss, you know, this is the situation. This is my issue. And you probably do that quite comfortable in your own head that actually that's not going to impact your chances of playing moving forward. Whereas if you're on the peripheries, like Gabriel Jesus has found himself at times, part of the squad, yes, but, you know, a starter, not always. So, yeah, I, I think this is this is really, really interesting. Um, either he is on the cusp of being back or this is Brazil being petty. I, I don't know what the answer is, but I just thought this to be a uh, really, really interesting story. Let me know your thoughts in the comments. We're going to take a short pause and then we're going to turn our attention uh, to the weekend in the Premier League in general. And there's a fair few games I want to talk through, actually, uh, on this one. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> 
Welcome back to the debrief on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Let's round up some of the key results in the Premier League, some of the games that I want to talk about. That 4-4 draw at Stamford Bridge between Chelsea and Manchester City. A classic, wasn't it? Um, a bit of controversy in that one as well, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Maurizio Pochettino certainly wasn't happy at the full-time whistle. We'll discuss Spurs' second, yep, second, Defeat in a week. They were beaten by Wolverhampton Wanderers at Molyneux. We're going to talk Newcastle's defeat at Bournemouth and Villa's win over Fulham that's seen them move to within a point of Spurs. Let's start off, though, with that Chelsea-Manchester City game. I mean, what a wild, wild, crazy game of football that was. It really, really was crazy. Um, You know, highly, highly entertaining. I don't think the quality was always great at times especially when you talk about the defending. I think it left a lot to be desired. Um, It's funny because somebody was telling me today that they thought Robert Sanchez actually had quite a good game, which I don't disagree with. But then when you look at the the sort of, you know, the the headlines, the the fact is that they conceded four goals. How can you give a goalkeeper praise when he's conceded four goals? That's how it feels. But that goes to highlight how many chances there were in the game. Look, I predicted on the 90 min show, um, at the back end of last week that Manchester City would be too good for Chelsea. And although I, I do think that, you know, when it comes to Manchester City and your assessment of their performance in this one particular game, you have to say they were a bit below par. I, I do want to say that Chelsea were brilliant and that Chelsea were were very, very good. And if one side was going to edge it, to me, it was Chelsea. Because I felt like, they just slightly edged it on the day. Yeah, of course, City had uh, slightly more possession, which they do against pretty much everybody. But you got the sense that Chelsea really understood actually how to break on City. And we'd been talking on the 90 Min show about City's ability to protect themselves against counterattacks and dangerous breaks because of, you know, the way they they sort of morph back into a tight, narrow shape. They force you wide, which buys them time in terms of getting more bodies back behind the ball. We also talked about tactical fouling, which is something that, Pep Guardiola's sides are notoriously very, very good at doing um, and how that can prevent counterattacks, that can prevent breaks. Chelsea seem to play a lot of one-twos um, in the right areas and, and release the right players into the right spaces. And as a result, they were a big threat to City. And um, as I say, I feel just about edged it in terms of the performance and probably deserved just about to win. Um, also, there was a big moment of controversy um, early on in the game where Haaland was awarded a penalty, which he then stepped up and uh, and tucked away pretty well. But the controversy came in the build-up. There was first uh, a potential foul by Jeremy Doku on a couple of Chelsea players as the ball came into the box. But then, of course, there was the coming together between Kukurea and Erling Haaland. Now, let me be clear. I don't think that what Jeremy Doku did was a foul. I don't think that you should be pulling goals back for that. Um, or, or pulling back play for that. I think that that was a fair enough decision. Look, VAR's there, so why not check it? Why not be sure or as close to sure as you can be? I didn't agree, though, with the award of the penalty. I didn't agree with it. I thought that Haaland started off by fouling Kukurea. And even afterwards, I don't think Kukurea does enough, in my opinion, for Haaland to go down the way he does. Now, I would be okay with the award of the penalty if I thought that these things were applied consistently. And that takes me back to the big old problem that we keep talking about on the debrief. It feels like every week now about the standard of officiating in the Premier League. It is awful. 
Not to mention Anthony Taylor, who, you know, was in the spotlight for a really, really bad decision just a couple of weeks ago, ended up dropping down to the championship for a weekend. I, I think that was rotational from what I understood. I don't think that was as a direct outcome of uh, of the decision he'd made the week prior, because if that was how we were doing things, then we wouldn't have any referees um, to officiate Premier League games on, on a weekly basis because they'd all be in the doghouse and they'd all be relegated to a, a division down below. But during his time refereeing in the championship, he made another glaring error um, in a championship fixture where he gave away a penalty for zero contact, pretty much. Um, and then he's back the following week, back in the Premier League. And what fixture does he get? The biggest one of the weekend. Like, it's just so strange to me. It, it really is. Now, some will argue Anthony Taylor is one of England's better referees. Some would argue that because he referees on the international stage and because he referees on the European stage that he is better qualified than most. But the truth is, man, there's just no accountability for bad decisions. And, and again, what happens every time this conversation comes up is people who aren't bothered by the decision. Why? Because they don't have any allegiance to the club that were on the wrong end of it. Go, ah, doesn't matter. Oh, it's subjective, whatever. But listen, we need to be stronger. And we need to, you know, demand that the standards are raised. And I said this on the Nighty Min Show and the guys were laughing at me. And I'm happy to say it again. At some point, there is going to come a time where a manager is going to take his players off of the pitch in the middle of the game because he's going to be so incensed with a wild decision. The VAR, um, the VARs, I should say, over in Stockley Park and the, the officials on the pitch these days, are getting so many things wrong. It is only a matter of time before this happens. And if I were Pochettino, I'd have been so livid with the award of that penalty, I would have been tempted to do exactly that. Again, people are going to say that's mad. People are going to say that's wild. Fine. But the, the, the point would be, with regards to the wider standard of officiating rather than any one decision. But there will come a point, right, where the, enough is enough. There will come a point where people have reached the end of their tether and somebody... Somewhere along the line, he's going to take this kind of drastic action. And only then do I believe that the Premier League will go, ah, you know what? We've got a bit of a problem here. The Premier League needs to become a bit of a laughing stock. I mean, it's headed that way by itself. They're doing a pretty good job of that, uh, the PGMOL and their officials. But, you know, you need almost that big cataclysmic moment that makes people sit up and take notice. And the tribalism, it has to go out the window when it comes to this discussion. Um, but yeah, full of praise for Chelsea's performance. Cole Palmer was really, really good. Connor Gallagher was really good, I thought. And Raheem Sterling. I mean, how he's not in the England squad is beyond me. Um, it, it, it's it, honestly, it's wild. It is wild um, that he's not a part of Gareth Southgate's setup. And a little bit surprising as well, because Raheem was such a big part of it in, in years gone by. Gareth Southgate was a great defender of Raheem Sterling, even when he came under fire in the media, which you have to say wasn't always fair. Um, so, yeah, to, to see him sort of snub him when he's playing as well as he is, is, is weird to me. Elsewhere, uh, Tottenham fell to their second defeat of the season. Oh, poor them. Having taken an early lead up at Molyneux, uh, Pablo Sarabia's goal and then assist uh, saw the game turned on its head. Look, Tottenham didn't play very well on the day. I, I thought that they were pretty good in the first few minutes and I thought they had a small period in the second half where they looked like they might get a second on the counter-attack but generally speaking I was massively underwhelmed by them yes they've got players out they've got players missing we're going to hear that over and over again Van der Ven's out for a while Romero of course was suspended Udogi 
who's been really, really good for them at left back, was unavailable too. He was serving a suspension because, of course, Spurs went down to nine men in their game against Chelsea earlier on in the week. But I just find it wild that, you know, for all the this is who we are chat from Andrew Postacoglu, that someone of his experience, and albeit experience in lesser leagues, generally speaking, didn't realise or recognise that he'd actually probably have to change his ways a little bit. And Wolves were just the better side on the day and in the end got what they deserved. The goal from Sarabia was was sensational. The The way he brought the ball under control and then fired home at the near post was was brilliant. You know, really, really great stuff. Um, I've always looked at Pablo Sarabia and thought, excellent technician. But maybe he's been lacking in other areas and, and maybe that's why he's not had the impact that I thought he might coming into the Premier League. I thought Gary O'Neill managed the game really well. And I thought Gary O'Neill's post-match team talk, which we saw some clips of going around, was spot on. You know, he literally said, guys, I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have performed to that level. I couldn't have produced what you've just produced at that level. He said, I'd have given it everything. I'd have left everything out there, all the rest of it, blah, blah, blah. But he almost acknowledged that, you know, this was a higher level than anything he'd been involved in in the past in terms of Wolves' performance on this day. And I think that that breathes confidence into your players. I, I really do. I think he's a great man manager, man manager, man manager, uh, Gary O'Neill. And um, and I think a lot of these players have bought into his methods, bought into his ideas. Let's not forget as well, right? They've been on the receiving end of some stinking refereeing decisions this season. Like they, they really, really have. Like we moan as Arsenal fans, but Wolves, who are in 12th place, um, with 15 points on the board currently could easily have more. Um, you know, they could easily have, I don't know, 18 minimum, maybe 19 points. And if they had 19 points, they'd be sitting in eighth place alongside Brighton and Hove Albion. And everybody would be talking about what a brilliant season they're having this time around. So I think, you know, I've got some sympathy for Wolves, but you know, it was just, it was just funny, wasn't it? Watching Tottenham collapse the way they did. Um, you know, they they pressed the self-destruct button on Monday when they faced Chelsea, getting a couple of players sent off. It was always going to be difficult after that. But having had the lead in this game, they just did not know how to manage it. They lacked quality. They weren't able to keep hold of the ball. Um, Wolves just kept on coming and coming and coming. And in the end, they got their just reward. Ange Postacoglu um, has gone within the space of a week from hero to zero, pretty much. And look, jokes aside and, and tribalism aside, I think he's done a good job. But I, I was saying to this to some of the boys earlier, I, I think the praise that they've been getting was just so disproportionate in comparison to sort of praise that other clubs who have started positively at the beginning of the season and found themselves in a position no one expected them to be would get at this stage in the campaign. We've played 12 games. You know, I can think of many years where, you know, there was a time where Sunderland were top. There was a time where Brighton were top. And these clubs were, were in those positions a handful of games into the campaign, but everybody knew they weren't going to maintain it. So the the, the sort of praise that they got was, was well managed and was um, fair and proportionate in that it wasn't going over the top. And vice versa, you know, when it went wrong, people weren't standing there um, sort of going crazy and throwing their toys out of the pram. But look, it's 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 what Wolves deserved. Tottenham are starting to level out a little bit now. Um, people will point to injuries, and rightly so. Um, I haven't got a problem with that. 
You know, we've moaned about it. Other clubs have moaned about it. Chelsea have moaned about it. United have moaned about it. I don't have a problem with Spurs pointing to that as a reason for their form going off the cliff, but it just shows that when we were saying um, that the squad depth isn't there and that if they did have a couple of injuries, it'd be interesting to see how they'd overcome those. You know, it was a valid point. And now, you know, we've, we've kind of got the proof there. Um, you know, they lost to Chelsea at home, a Chelsea side that went into that game week, what, 10th, 11th in the league. And Wolves went into this game week in 14th. So you've lost to the 10th side and the 14th side at the time of going into those fixtures. Not games you could lose if you're challenging for the title, which apparently they are. Um, we're also going to talk uh, Newcastle. We're going to talk uh, their defeat at Bournemouth. We'll talk Aston Villa. Uh, and we'll talk some of the comments and reaction from Pochettino and Roberto De Zerbi in particular right after this. So Newcastle, after going out to Dortmund and being beaten, uh, were, of course, uh, on the road this weekend. They travelled all the way down uh, from the far north, uh, the far northeast, uh, to the south coast where they met Bournemouth. And let's be honest, Newcastle were played off the park. They were a shadow of themselves. They weren't anywhere near the level we've come to expect from them of late. And again, the first thing that they'll point out, rightly so, I'm not saying there's a problem with that, but it will be injuries. And again, the point that we've made repeatedly about Newcastle is, do they have the depth? Can they cope with competing on multiple fronts? All the talk off the back of this one is around Newcastle because of how heavy favourites they were. Um, there's some Kieran Trippier chat that needs to be had. We'll do that in, in a second. But what I really want to do is give some praise to Bournemouth because I've watched them, I think, three or four times now this season, live and in the flesh. And I've always felt that they've shown better than, than what they've come away with. I've always felt like they were getting Andoni Iraola's ideas and they were able, they were starting to be able to translate those ideas from the training ground onto the pitch. But it just wasn't going their way at this moment in time. This was the first time, though, where you just felt like it had clicked. You know, they were really, really good on the day, Bournemouth, I thought. And, you know, it was maybe that moment where Andoni Iraola's Bournemouth arrived. Now, you could argue that it's arrived a little bit too late, that in this division you can ill afford to start the way they have. And that as a result and as a consequence of that, they're probably going to be in the relegation fight at some point. But Andoni Iraola will be delighted with what he saw from his players. He'll be delighted in particular with Dominic Solanke, who's managed to match his record um, from last season in terms of goal tally in the Premier League and, uh, and made sure that they beat a depleted um, and very disappointed Newcastle side. So disappointed in terms of the fans that one of them decided to have a go at Kieran Trippier, who, to his credit, went over to have the conversation. Listen, I think what Trippier said was spot on you know, to highlight the injuries, to highlight the effort, all the rest of it. He was right to do that. And I can totally understand why he felt the need to make that point. What I would argue is that it probably didn't do him any favours. Um, you know, there will be some people that look at that and go good on you uh, for taking the time to speak to them, albeit it was a little bit prickly. But I just think that, yeah, you hear those things as a player, I'm sure, all the time. I think sometimes you just need to walk past them. Um, the Newcastle fans have every right to feel upset because that's one hell of a journey that they've just made. But you you turn up to a football match, you're not entitled to win it by default. It's not how it works. Um, also, Aston Villa's win over Fulham uh, saw them move to within a point of Spurs. Funny how Spurs were title contenders last weekend. Aston Villa 
nowhere near it yet. Now there's just a point separating the two sides. Look, you've got to give Unai Emery praise. A lot of you will know that I wasn't his biggest fan during his time at Arsenal. Um, but I maintain that the guy's a good manager. I maintain that he's got a slightly lower level than the elite level. Um, and Aston Villa as a football club ticks all of those boxes because, you know, the level of expectation isn't as high as it would be at Arsenal, United, Liverpool, Chelsea, City, for example. Um, you know, so when you do lose from time to time, like they did against Nottingham Forest last time out, that's not the end of the world. You know, it's not the biggest deal. It doesn't get the level of coverage that then, as uh, as a consequence, increases the pressure on you as a boss to keep your job. They're very well-resourced, Aston Villa. Everybody knows that. Everybody's seen that uh, come to fruition over uh, the last uh, few years. Um, but yeah, the, the expectation thing, it, it isn't there just yet. And whilst Eddie Howe, on the other hand, is having to now deal with elevated expectations, Unai Emery is probably not quite at that point yet, which works in his favour. Look, great job he's doing so far. And um, good on Aston Villa for moving within a point of Tottenham Hotspur. Um, you know, they could challenge for the European places this year. Can they go top four? I think that'll probably be a bit of a stretch over the course of the campaign, but they've got to believe it. And that's probably what they should be aiming for. Aim for the sky, right? Um, that, that's how it should be. The other thing I wanted to mention was um, Maurizio Pochettino's angry reaction at the full-time whistle against Manchester City. Now, I've said to you guys that I don't think that that was a penalty kick. So I totally understand why he'd have been annoyed. I understand that he was annoyed about the timing of the, the full-time whistle being blown. And I understand he was upset with the challenge um, that took place on uh, Raheem Sterling by a couple of his former teammates. Um, were they his former teammates? Technically, well, from players um, of, you know, his former club. Then Roberto De Zerbi, whose Brighton side had a disappointing result at the weekend, the 1-1 draw with Sheffield United, not ideal, came out and said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he pretty much said this, I don't like 80% of the English referees. So, you know, it, it just astounds me that this time last week, all the conversation was, was Mikel Arteta. The state of him, the cheek of him, how dare he speak to officials like that? How dare he speak about officials like that? It's a disrespect. It's a lack of respect. And it's something that should be punished. Yet a week down the line, we've had Klopp telling people off about where they hold their press conferences. A club is limited to whatever facilities they have. You've had um, Maurizio Pochettino walk onto a pitch to angrily confront, uh, confront, I beg your pardon, a referee. Um, off the back of some decisions that he didn't like and he had to be held back. And you've had a Premier League manager sit down in a press conference and basically tell you he doesn't like the referees. Now, that's cool, right? I think that Pochettino has got a case. I think De has got a case as well. So I'm not being critical of their thinking or the cases that they are stating and making. What I am critical of is the hypocrisy when it comes to the way these things are reported on. Because when Mikel Arteta came out last weekend and said that the refereeing was a disgrace, which he was absolutely spot on about, by the way, he was torn to pieces in the media. Where's that same energy for Poch? Oh, because Poch does it. It's passion. P-A-S-H-U-N. When De Zerbi does it, it ain't a big deal because he's the Brighton boss. Is, is that what we're saying? 
the standards have to be raised across the board. You're going to punish one, punish them all. You're going to give penalties for a certain type of foul. Give it every time it happens. All we want as football fans is consistency. We're never going to agree with everything, but there has to be a base level of consistency applied, and we're just not getting that at this moment in time. So that was my last point on the Premier League. Just find it strange that Pochettino could do what he did, that Deserbi can do what he did. I remember sort of Arteta's comments being described as calculated and to intimidate and to try and encourage officials to give his side the rubber, the green later on or the benefit of the doubt in certain situations. Funny that because Roberto De Zerbi literally told you that he doesn't like your officials in a press conference yet will not face, not at the time of recording anyway, uh, any um, sanctions or, or fines or anything like that. So yeah, just interesting, isn't it? One rule for some, one rule for the others. Right, quick pause again, and then we're going to turn our attentions to Serie A. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back along to the debrief on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Hope you're all good. Hope you're all well. We've been discussing uh, another weekend in the Premier League, but now we're going to turn our attentions to Serie A because uh, Rudy Garcia, the Napoli boss, uh, according um, to uh, reports, is uh, about to be sacked by Aurelio Di Laurentiis. Now, it's a tough one, this, because, you know, as I've said before, whoever came in and replaced Luciano Spalletti was going to have a hard time. The levels that Spalletti took Napoli to are levels that we haven't seen since the Diego Maradona days. I'm talking about the 1980s. Right? You're going that far back. Rudy Garcia was a surprise choice, in my opinion. He wasn't the one I'd have gone for. It's a mistake that Laurentiis has made, De Laurentiis has made. And now he feels like he wants to make that change early enough in the season to save Napoli and their status as a Champions League club, keep them in the top four and then look to build again and hopefully uh, push on to those levels again. Look, some of the Italian sports papers, the way they've been reacting to this has been um, quite damning, really. Um somebody described the decision to appoint Rudy Garcia as giving your Ferrari to the wrong driver because the feeling is and the, the, the belief is in Italy that Napoli do have a good enough side to still be competing and they have enough of the players from last season still together to be able to at least get close to that level of form. And the truth is that they're miles off it at this moment in time. If you look at the Serie A table at this moment in time, Okay, they're fourth. It's not a disaster, but they are 10 points off of the top after just 12 games, which highlights a significant drop off. Napoli started the season like a house on fire last time around, but a 10 point, you know, swing, albeit early in the season, just doesn't feel very likely. And so that means that Napoli Scudetto holders at this moment in time 
are not really contenders for the title, which will upset the Napoli fans, given how long it's been since they were in this type of position where there was that level of expectation going into a season. But look, Rudy Garcia apparently has travelled back to France to be with his family. And according to some of the uh, reports coming out of Italy, Igor Tudor, remember him, former Juve defender, is being linked with taking uh, over the job. Um, yeah, I, I'm just scrolling through uh, some of these headlines that some of the um, the papers have uh, have put out. Uh, La Gazzetta della Sport journalist Sebastiano Venazza on Monday said everyone lost and two were wrong, both President De Laurentiis and the coach Rudy Garcia. Um, he also said that De Laurentiis loves to surprise people. He listens and then makes decisions. He's the man in charge. He puts the money but the absolute decisionism doesn't always pay off. In nearly 20 years, he's often picked the right coaches, but Garcia is among those who haven't made it. Um, just reading through uh, some of these. Uh, Garcia entered Castel Volturno with a mower. So the, the, this notion that, uh, or this, what's the word for it? Analogy is that, Rudy Garcia entered Napoli's training facility with a mower, weakened uh, Labocca, generated a short circuit. As a result, the team lost a point of reference. And Kvarat Scalia, who was being talked about last season as the world's next big thing, has seemed the most, and I quote, out of place, uh, according to this bit here. Um, so look, I'm not going to read through all of them. Um, I'm not going to read through all of them, but it looks like Igor Tudor is going to take over former Udinese, Hellas Verona and Marseille coach. Um, he is uh, supposedly interested in taking up the role, uh, but he wants a contract until June 2025. Now, according to this, uh, Aurelio De Laurentiis has made him an offer, but that offer is only until the end of the campaign with the option of a further season. So whether Igor Tudor will accept those terms, we don't know, but it is understood that Rudy Garcia, despite official confirmation not having reached us at the time of recording is about to be sacked as the Napoli boss so there you go let's turn our attentions uh, to a goal that will probably win the Puskas award um, and I don't think regardless of what happens actually over the course of this season you're going to see a better goal uh, than this um, I'll just uh, share my screen and you might be able to get a quick peek at it um, as I'm sort of talking through it and, uh, and and discussing it uh let me just um bring that up for you hold on a second here we go i'm sure you guys can see that let me just try and see if i can zoom that in a little bit no there you go um so this was the game between inter and frosinoni uh, of course inter won this game uh by two goals to nil but this was the first goal from federico de marco look at that for a lob I mean, when you watch the replay, it looks even better. It, it really, really does. You know, he wheeled away in celebration. Jan Sommer, the goalkeeper, with his head in his hands because he couldn't quite believe what he just witnessed from Federico Di Marco. It's from an angle that you don't normally see those types of shots taken on. Obviously, the distance is huge and the execution of it is, is quite wonderful. Inter, by the way, are flying. Top of the league, doing really, really well under Simone Inzaghi. And 
in a lot of people's eyes, they are the favourites for the Scudetto. They are the favourites in my eyes. I've said recently that I think Juventus could be dark horses, but I still think Inter have more than them in their locker. And, um, you know, when they have moments like this, you start to feel it could be their year. Look at where DeMarco picks up the ball just inside his own half, lets it run, has a glance up, spots the keeper off his line, and the execution of that really is incredible. Look at where he's here from. Wonderful, wonderful goal uh, from Federico Di Marco. Right, um, we're going to talk German football just very, very quickly. We're going to talk Xabi Alonso. We're going to talk Granit Xhaka as well. And then uh, we're going to ask for some of your questions, which you can start popping in the chat box now uh, before uh, we dive into that little Q&A bit at the end of the programme. So start getting involved. Is there anything that I ha haven't discussed that you do want to discuss? that you want some thoughts on, that you want an opinion on, um, or that you want to raise. Uh, this is the debrief on the Chronicles of Acuna podcast, our weekly show. And as I said to you right at the start, I'm so chuffed and thrilled by how well this has gone. I mean, the numbers and the download numbers on the audio of the first two episodes were just really, really special. Um, really, really special. So um, thank you so, so much. Right. Uh, let's take that short pause. Let's talk Granite Xhaka after that pause. Uh, and Xabi Alonso and Bayer Leverkusen in general and then we'll get into your question. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Bayer Leverkusen, they're flying, aren't they? They really, really are. Top of the Bundesliga with 31 points from a possible 33 available. 10 wins, one draw. Goals for 34 goals, which means they average more than three goals per game and they've conceded 10 plus 24 goal difference at this stage of the season is pretty damn healthy. What's the key to this success? What's the secret behind it? Well, we all hear repeatedly about what a great job Xabi Alonso is doing. And when you watch Bayer Leverkusen play, it's hard to disagree with that. For me, he's the next uh, Real Madrid boss. I, I really do think that. I think that he will end up back at Los Blancos in a managerial capacity. He's gone out, he's gone to earn his stripes um, and he's at a club like Bayer Leverkusen where he's well-resourced enough um, to, to make his mark. Always difficult to topple Bayern Munich, I think, at the top of the Bundesliga over the course of the 38 games, uh, not 30 games, but over the course of a full season. Just ask um, Dortmund's Edin Terzic about that from last season. He'll tell you uh, all about it. But the reason... I wanted to highlight by Leverkusen is because of uh, this man, Granite Xhaka. Here he is. Still hold on to this, you know. I'll never let it go. Look at that. And the, the thing I wanted to discuss about Granite Xhaka is, is this role that he's been given at by Leverkusen because I, I find it all so interesting. You know, we, um, you know, we thought going into this season that him leaving and somebody like Kai Havertz coming in was going to be Arsenal becoming more front-footed, was going to see Arsenal become more creative, was going to see Arsenal having been able to make tons of chances last season, um, you know, take that up to a whole new level and therefore Arsenal were going to convert more and all the rest of it. You look at Granit Xhaka, though, a player that, look, he wanted to leave, right? You can't pin this on Mikel Arteta as much as some people would like to. He wanted to go. He wanted to go back to Germany. He made that abundantly clear. And in the end, Arsenal managed to strike a deal with a German outfit and off he went. He is the player currently in Europe with the most progressive passes played 
this season. Now, let me just make sure that I read you that stat properly, that I don't miss anything because I think it's important that we we, we get that stuff right. Here it is. Um, here we go. Granite Xhaka has made, uh, let me, sorry, let me correct that. See? That's why I needed to bring it up. Granite Xhaka has made more successful passes into the final third than any other player in Europe's top seven leagues this season. That's 129 successful passes into the final third. So this idea that we needed somebody to make our game more progressive kind of goes out the window, doesn't it, when you see that? And what that's done is made me want to go back now and look at how many progressive passes into the final third he made for Arsenal last season. And although I talked a lot about how his balance, i.e. the fact that he can attack but can also drop into defensive positions, made us look balanced as a midfield on the whole, I think perhaps just reading that, I've maybe underestimated the impact that he had going forward. Now, I always said it was a good impact last season. What was it? Seven or eight league goals. I talked about that repeatedly. But perhaps I didn't realise what a progressive passer of the ball he is. And perhaps I'd allowed preconceptions of Granit Xhaka from his early Arsenal days um, maybe cloud my judgment when it comes to looking at that. But I just think that's a fascinating stat. It feels like Xavi Alonso has brought this guy in and has just said, you're my leader. You're one of my guys. I'm going to build a system that allows you just a little bit more freedom. And you know what you've got behind you and you know that you should be trying to progress um, the ball nice and early at every opportunity. Nobody ever questioned whether Granit Xhaka, by the way, has the technical ability to do that. And um, he's reaping the rewards from it now. Bayer and Leverkusen are reaping uh, the rewards uh, as well. Um, some interesting questions coming up <laughs> on this uh, as well, from what I can see uh, building up at this moment in time. Um, so those are the stories that I wanted to cover uh, on this week's episode of The Debrief. Um, there will be one next Monday. Uh, maybe we'll pick a specific subject and really deep dive into that, given that it's going to be uh, an international week um, and there won't be any football to uh, rely on um, as uh, sort of the basis of our content. If you're just joining us um, on the live stream, feel free to go back to the beginning. We talk Gabriel uh, Jesus. Uh, we talk Spurs' second Premier League defeat in a week. We talk the thriller at Stamford Bridge, Federico De Marco, Maurizio Pochettino, Roberto De Zerbi. Uh, we also took Newcastle's defeat at Bournemouth. Um, Villa's win. Um, we'll talk about uh, Chelsea versus, uh, I've said Manchester City and Chelsea already. I'm just uh, going over the notes and, and reading, rereading stuff that I shouldn't be reading. Uh, we also talked Italian football. We talked Rudy Garcia um, with reports uh, emerging that he's set to be sacked discussed how difficult it is to replace or was always going to be to replace Luciano Spalletti. Federico De Marco's stunning goal and Xhaka uh, under Xabi. There you go. Um, right, questions. Let's do it because we've got a few coming through in the chat. If you've got some, throw them in uh, because, um, well, basically do it now forever. Hold your peace. Uh, if you're listening on audio, leave us a review. If you're watching on YouTube, leave us a like and subscribe to the channel if you haven't done already. Let's do your questions next. <laughs> Okay, uh, Matthew says, Trippier engaging with the Newcastle fans after the loss. Was it warranted or bad judgment? Bias aside, what if an Arsenal player had done the same? So, I, I think that Trippier 
you know, as I said earlier on in the program, right, I don't think he said anything out of line. I don't think he said anything that could really be questioned. And I think actually, you know, looking at it, it was clearly a small group of Newcastle fans that were making their feelings known. I think they need to stop being so entitled, to be honest. This is a club that not that long ago were in the doldrums under Mike Ashley. Eddie Howe and those players that they were giving stick to have taken them on an incredible ride and on an incredible journey. And the expectation level is back up to where it was once upon a time at St. James's Park because of not just Eddie Howe, but that group of players. Probably none more so than Kieran Trippier. You know, the way he's raised the levels at Newcastle over the last, you know, year in particular, he's been incredible. He's been an unbelievable leader for them. Look, I, I think if I'm Kieran Trippier, I don't do that. I think that it can only bring more problems than it can good. Um, I, I, I genuinely believe that because football fans, I've said it a million times, are not mature enough to deal with that type of thing or to have a civil conversation. And in the end, it just ends up making some fans think that you're having to go back and get their defences up, which doesn't bode well for you in the future. So personally, I don't think you should have done it. I think players should be able to just put that stuff aside, go give the fans a clap. We talked about how long a journey they made. Get yourselves down the tunnel. You know, I'm not one for apologies on social media. I, I, I don't think that's great either um, in terms of what it leads to. If you feel you should do it and you feel that you want to do it, then fine. That's your prerogative, right? It's your, it's your right. But I just think that, um, yeah, you know, it, it wasn't ideal is the way I'd look at it. Uh, let's see what else we've got. Um, Mickey says, hi, Harry, a question for you. What would be your best starting 11 for the Arsenal should all players be fully fit and available. Um, oh, what do I do about the goalkeeping situation for starters? Let's go across the back line. White, Saliba, Gabriel, and probably Timber, I think, when everybody's fit and available. I think he showed me in the small amount of games that he's played for Arsenal that he can do that inverted role. From the left-hand side, that he's much more defensively sound than Zinchenko, even though he's a right-footed player. Having said that, I think if you've got um, Partey and Rice in midfield, along with Odegaard, which would be my best Arsenal midfield, then you can probably get away with Zinchenko. And Zinchenko, because of that extra solidity in the middle of the park, probably gets a little bit more license than he's had at times this season to go into other areas and do some of his best work. And my front line is easy. Saka, Jesus and Martinelli in goal. For me, it's still Ramsdale. But, you know, over time, I'm happy for that to change. I just want to see more from David Raya. I want to feel more comfortable with David Ryan. And when I get to that point, you know, I'll be the first one to put my hands up and say, fine, you know, he needed that bit of time, but it was the right call. And in the end, that call has been um, justified. Let me take it on. Uh, Jimmy says, would you swap Shaka with Havertz? At this moment in time, yeah, I would. Because Granite Xhaka had a much more um, positive impact on the team than Kai Havertz has had so far. I said it on the review show following the Brentford, Brentford game, the Burnley game. Look, there are signs that Havertz is getting better. But you do have to look quite hard. And that is not what some people want to hear. You know, you never know, two years down the line, will we be looking back and saying, I can't believe we ever doubted this, this guy and finally understand the, the full extent of what his role entails. And therefore, we'd be in a position where we can judge him a little bit more fairly than we do now. Because 
I've, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Kai Havertz came in as a player who played for the last few years as a forward. So naturally, the first instinct is to judge him on forwards numbers, on forwards outputs. And the truth is he's not a forward in this Arsenal team. So you have to readjust your expectations of him to a degree. But I do think he is getting better slowly but surely. Um, but at this moment in time, if you told me, you know, next weekend's game, who do I want to play? Then it would be Xhaka for me. But that's not necessarily because I think that he's more talented than Kai Havertz. It's because I don't think that Kai Havertz is fit, is the right fit in terms of the overall balance of the side. And as a result, having upset that balance, I think we've seen some lacklustre performances from Arsenal this season. We've seen a lack of creativity at times. Now, in theory, Havertz is a more creative and a more progressive player than Granit Xhaka. But we've upset the balance, as I say, in midfield, which has actually had an adverse effect on how frequently we can create uh, good opportunities. But yeah, I would at this moment in time. Yeah, I, I would. OK, um, Evan Hood says, do you agree with Tom Canton, um, who's got high wishes for Yusuf Fafana over Douglas Louise? Um, look, I don't really know massive amounts about Yusuf Fafana, so I don't want to get too deep into this for that reason. but. You know, the Douglas Louise one, I think he looks a decent player and clearly there's been interest there before, um, which is why people look at him and say, yeah, that's a that's a good one. You know, that'd be great. The problem for me with Douglas Louise is the fact that he plays for Aston Villa and the fact that he plays for Aston Villa are a very well resourced club in the Premier League means that if you're going to try and take him away from them, given his importance to them, you're going to have to pay way over the odds. And I don't think he's such a special supreme talent that you couldn't get somebody of an equal level on the continent for half the money. And that's my point here. And people will say, stop being an accountant. Why do you care how much it costs? Blah, 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 blah. It's nothing to do with that. It's an understanding of where my club is at financially, where they are with, in regards to the financial fair play rules and understanding that if they can save that money um, to buy someone who's an equivalent then they probably should do that. Now, if Douglas Lewis was playing for Sevilla and was available for 30 million, I'd be all over it. But you, I think you're going to have to pay 60, 65 at the absolute minimum to get him out of Aston Villa. Is he worth that sort of money? I know what people are going to say. Well, Kai Havertz isn't worth that sort of money. Okay, but if you make one mistake, which the Kai Havertz signing might prove to be, then do you fix that mistake by making another mistake? Do you ignore the lessons learned just to keep up appearances? I don't think so. Um, Jimmy asks, uh, do you think Villa are top four contenders? I'm not going to say that at this stage, um, but if they stay in the mix uh, going into the latter part of the campaign, or if they stay in the mix after Christmas, I'll say, yeah, why not? Why not? Um, Cesar says, am I the only one disappointed in Nelson? I feel like he has had small opportunities. And he doesn't get involved in the chances he gets. He seems shadowed apart from United. Um, I, I, to be fair to Nelson, he's had to play on the right a few times, which is in his best role, in my opinion. Um, you know, I, I think it's difficult sometimes coming off the bench in the, the, the last few minutes of a game and being expected to, to change the course of it. So it's difficult to judge Reese Nelson, really. I think we all know that he's a talent. We can all see it. Um, and the question is, when it comes to whether we want to keep him or not, the question is, what would somebody pay for him? And is that worth us weakening our squad that little bit to get him off the books? 
Um, gonna take one more. Um, Evan says, any word on Partey, or is he still likely to be out until January? That's what we understand at this moment in time. But again, no official confirmation, no official word from anybody. Um, so we're kind of playing a bit of a guessing game at the moment. But, you know, it'd be ideal if he came back before that, given the hectic schedule that we've got around the end of December in particular. And, of course, with European games uh, still to come in some of the midweeks coming up uh, across the next few weeks. Guys, I'm going to leave it there. Um, I am going to leave it there. Thank you, as always, for tuning in uh, to the debrief here on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. It is so, so appreciated. I'll see you all tomorrow with another bit of content. Until then, like, subscribe, uh, give us a follow uh, on Twitter and on Instagram, actually, at Harry uh, underscore Simu on there. Um, let us know what you thought of the show in the comments, and I will see you all tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, with something else. Until then, take care. Mm-hmm.